The interview you're about to hear was aired on Planet Philadelphia on Germantown Community Radio at 92.9 FM, WGGTLP Philadelphia, and gtownradio.com. Hello, everyone. This is Kay Wood, the host of Planet Philadelphia. Linda Rosenwein, our assistant producer reporter, is here with me, and we're doing an interview with Nicola Ferralis. Hello, Dr. Ferralis. Thank you so much for speaking with us again. Um, for, the, for the listeners who don't know, we did speak with you earlier this year. That's right. Um, good morning, everybody. And it's, it's a pleasure to be back on the show. So s some people may not have heard your earlier uh, appearance on oh. Planet Philadelphia. So could you just say a few words about yourself to introduce yourself sure, to the listeners? Absolutely. Yeah, so yes, I'm a, my name is Nicola Ferralis. Uh, I'm a research scientist at um, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. And um, most of our work uh, in the group that I lead uh, relates to technologies that have to do with basically energy at large, energy and, and, and related issues as we get to. Um, so for example, we work on uh, renewable energy technologies um, or efficiency technologies, essentially anything that we can help curb uh, emissions that comes from energy production, but also emissions that comes from the energy that we use at home, for example. Uh, and so part of the earlier show that we did uh, related to some technology that we developed to preserve, for example, things like food uh, by, by having a sort of a self-cooling system that helps achieving that goal without resorting on, uh, or at least without resorting too much on uh, air conditioning of things of that sort. But it's, it's actually one of the technologies we develop, but we do have also have a, a line of research that um, which we'll be talking about today, which basically deals with the ability to take and develop new technologies that at large affect the energy sector, but as we'll see, they might affect also the building industry or, or even uh, uh, the construction industry at large, that basically takes what we used to consider fuels or materials that, that we burn or we used to burn uh, things like coal besides petroleum. And actually, rather than burn them, use them for something useful uh, to make actually things. Uh, so an approach that we call uh, literally coal to products. So there's a lot of work that it's active in this area. Um, and uh, it's both work that we do directly with partners, but also uh, a lot of the work that we do is actually sponsored directly by the federal government through the uh, Department of Energy. So you mentioned uh, coal, and that's actually what we're going to be talking about today, new uses for coal. Uh, Linda, did you want to jump yeah. in here? So before we start talking about these new uses mm -hmm. that might eliminate greenhouse gas emissions, I think we all need a little more background about coal itself. For sure. And I understand that there are different grades of coal. Sure. Are these based on the amount of energy each produces or something else? Sure, sure, sure. So uh, it's actually a very good question. So we tend to bunch everything into this broad name, which is coal, when reality of it is it's essentially a mineral. It's an organic mineral, um, and there's lots of different sort of types that comes with it. Now, coal, uh, of which Pennsylvania is obviously very rich of, um, is essentially an organic mineral that comes from trees. You know, so when we want to make fun of the industry, like for example, that gasoline is dinosaur juice, uh, it's actually not. Um, it's actually forests. Uh, forests that back tens of tens to, to, to 100 million years ago, we used to cover 
North America that got then buried down through sedimentation to form this large formation of um, basically hydrocarbons. The bed of it, uh, mostly in Pennsylvania, uh, but also in other parts of the country, basically went up to form coal and, uh, and associated hydrocarbons, including natural gas that is actually now in the Marcellus plate, it's actually what being fracked and extracted. It's told, still part of the same, uh, essentially same, the same uh, evolutionary development from a ge geo geological perspective. Um, so there's different types of coal, obviously, and what makes the difference across them it's not necessarily the kind of forest that we started with. It's, you know, there's a little bit of that, but most importantly, it has to do with the fact how much is being uh, processed. And by process, we literally mean when it's covered, it's been covered up to the ages, what kind of temperature uh, it, it reached basically. And the higher the temperature, the more this material has been cooked. Uh, so we can go from something that is lignite uh, that you might have heard of. Uh, it, it's the sort of the youngest coal or the most raw. And it's so young that in fact, it doesn't even look black, but it's more like a sort of a light brown. Um, you can't really burn it uh, in that the water content is extremely high, for example. Uh, it's not very efficient. Uh, and I'm not talking even efficiency in terms of emissions. I'm just talking about how much energy you can extract. On the other end of the spectrum, you have material that is being cooked quite heavily, which is Pennsylvania is actually pretty rich of, uh, which is anthracite. Anthracite is a type of coal, which is a cook quite a bit and literally nature cooked it for us, prepared it for us. Um, in the sense that it transformed with very dense carbonaceous mass with very little water, very little volatiles. So when you burn it, all of it can actually come down and actually produce energy, more efficiently so than lignite. In the middle of that, there's a spectrum of varieties. They call from bituminous, subbituminous, um, which have a different level of volatiles, content to it, uh, and energy. Obviously, in terms of energy production, sometimes, well, for the most part, in fact, um, companies were burning whatever they found locally. So they were not really uh, necessarily looking at optimizing what to extract, mostly to move it around. So uh, again, anthracite was uh, Pennsylvania, very rich of or high ranked bituminous, which is close to anthracite. But in other parts of the countries or in Europe, in actually in other parts of the world, for, that, for example, in Germany, uh, it's very rich on lignite, which they still burn today, which is obviously not very efficient for India, for example, as well. So you burn what you get, basically. Um, and so there's this variety of material, which we literally burn, you know, put on fire, which uh, in a way it's not very smart, we think, um, besides, you know, emissions that gets produced when compared to burning things like petroleum or even better natural gas, coal produces a lot more carbon because it is actually a lot more carbon to start with that it actually it's, it's in there. You know, if you want a high energy material, that's what it is. Um, so the transition to, let's say, the carbon less future, so to speak, uh, it's, it's necessary because of the, you know, essentially the amount of emission that are produced. Now, one might think that the transition that is taking place right now in places like the Appalachia, including Pennsylvania, but you know, that includes Ohio, West Virginia, Virginia, as well as in the, in the West towards Wyoming, the, the reduction or at least the closing of coal power plants sometimes has very little to do with emission directly in the sense that it's been mandated to be directly, but you know, it's because of the economics of um, retrofitting power plants to make them still efficient, but at the same time uh, to emit as little as possible, it's actually paramount, it's actually quite expensive. And renewables are to the point where economically they actually make more economic sense. So coal is being phased out because of economics, which comes down to regulation that impose emissions, but it's an economic process that is taking place. 
which I personally think is a good thing. Um, however, though, communities, mostly rural communities, relying on coal. There's lots of them in Pennsylvania, but that includes places in West Virginia and others. Um, they're suffering because of the fact that uh, they've been relying a lot on coal to actually make a living. Uh, earlier, you know, in the in the decade, probably in the past few years, and I'd say probably in the past five years, uh, efforts have been sort of started from, from literally from a technological standpoint and from a research standpoint. It says we do have this resource. Um, if mine properly, be mindful that mining is actually sustainably not really a good a good process. So if we could do it properly, both from the environment and from the people working in there. There might be an option to actually not use coal for burning it, to actually as a combustible material, but to actually as a feedstock. That's basically where this sort of coal to product idea sort of comes about. And it's not new necessarily. Um, this is definitely not a new idea. I want to remark that pretty clearly. If we go back 100 years ago, before the petroleum era, uh, coal was the main material that was used to make things. Uh, and by things, I mean from nylon for stockings, uh, but not only for anything that has to do with the first one of the first polymers used to make plastics. Nylon is a coal byproduct. Uh, it's made out of coal, um, but also aspirin. Uh, aspirin that salicylic acid it, uh, was actually extracted first by Bayer using coal and many others. Um, there's a whole variety to the point where back in the 20s and 30s, they, they had this thing called the coal tree where from the bottom actually had all these branches, all the products you can make. And I'm happy to send it to you so you, so you can take a look. That, that goes to say that it's not a novel idea, but eventually it got supplanted by petroleum, which uh, was cheaper, easier to make, and uh, ended up the process uh, to the point where uh, it changes basically the equation, leaving coal as basically a fuel. From what I gathered, it sounds like what you're doing is trying to find uses for coal, but not as an energy source, but as something else. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. So we, we can make it to support uh, other energy technologies. For example, if you can make a building out of carbonaceous materials that allow them to be more energy efficient, thermally, for example, then you're helping also. But it's not that directly you use it to actually make energy, uh, rather you use it for actually making it lighter uh, or, or, or safer. So, for example, you know, they don't combust, <laughs> so make it fireproof or even technologies uh, that can replace other industries that rely on a lot of energy to be made. For example, I'm sure you heard about carbon fibers. You might have actually an appliance made of carbon fibers, like a bike or something else. Carbon fibers now are actually, for the most part, made out of things like specific polymers, which then they're processed to make these very strong materials, which could be actually stronger than steel for that matter. The problem is they're very expensive. And that's why, for example, if you buy a car made out of carbon fiber or a bike, make out of carbon fiber, um, it's not actually pretty expensive. Um, however, there are efforts, and we are actually part of that in collaboration with the Department of Energy, to try to identify ways to actually make the same fibers, uh, but using coal as the precursor, literally pitch, the pitch that we call pitch black. You mentioned pitch, what is that? Antar. Antar, yeah, so, so coal, and again, here it's a broad family. Um, depending on where you are, let's say it's sitting in the middle of it, it's a bit in a bituminous uh, coal, it has a lot of components. There's a gas component to it. Sometimes there's also natural gas in it. Uh, but most part, if you sort of take that and, and you cook it a little bit, not higher temperature, but you cook it a little bit, literally liquid comes out. Um, and that liquid is tar, which can be purified to remove the small uh, hydrocarbons that can be used for making some hydrocarbons, things like small molecules like alcohols or, or even 
things like uh, propane. Once you remove that out, you're left with pitch, uh, broadly speaking. This is sort of a kind of all generalization, but in general, but you know, you can do a lot with that. And so, in fact, when we develop these technologies to make carbon fibers out of coal, we don't really use coal, we use really pitch because it has the same ability of polymers to be extruded, for example. You make like a spaghetti, um, which you can then produce and make into a fiber, for example. So, but you can also make films, you can make laminates, um, you can make a lot of different structures uh, that uh, could be actually sort of beneficial. These different types of coals, are any of them, particularly in this country, more available, like just lying around in the surface or already in slag piles or? There's a bit of everything. I'm not actually an expert on geological surveys of Michaels. I know that there's different types. Uh, some are more sort of surface level. Frankly, I'm very much against any mining in principle, but in particular case here, deep ground mining is pretty much unexistent anymore in, in the US. It's very minimal, almost to the point that it's been standard. I mean, there's a lot of work and, uh, in the West, but also in West Virginia with mountaintop mining. So, you know, stripping on the surface so you can excavating all your way down. That's still pretty much the bulk of it. And, uh, and obviously that's a problem, right? You know, that's, that's kind of a, uh, the ideal problem. Uh, but I want to say also that the problem here, it's not just about the mining in itself and the way it's done, but you know, why it's done that way. You, when, when you burn it, you do need a lot of it. Right. And so when you need a lot of coal, there are only a few ways you can actually do that. Right. And so that by stripping it out. Now, again, I'm not saying that it's the right thing to do, but that's kind of where the, the whole process comes from. And you don't really care, to be frank, of what you're mining. As long as the stuff is combustible, you basically mine, keep mining and, and keep wandering. Um, if you start making, so in, in a way, it's like saying, uh, if I need to make something out of uh, a mineral, uh, I'm just going to mine. If I have to burn it, I'll mine pretty much all that I can, you know, find, and that's it. You know, I don't care about being selective of what I do, doing it better. Keeping in mind also that if you want to burn it, coal is actually cheap. Uh, and Power River Basin in Wyoming coal run, costs about $14 for a ton of coal. So if you actually want to dig your backyard in that dirt, it's actually probably more expensive to dig than actually coal. And that's market price. It's not necessarily to, to outcompete anybody else. Just if you want to sell it, that's kind of the cost. So if you wanted to improve mine for coal, it's very difficult with those kinds of prices. There's very little margins that the option is basically keep going like that with horrible conditions sometimes, or just close down. You can, you can stick to it. However, the proposed solution here to the point where we think it might be viable is for coal not to be a fuel, but to become a feedstock. Let's say if we make something that could be $10 or let's say $5 per kilogram, let's say $10 a pound or less, but then you use not as much coal, then obviously that cost can cover for making mining, first of all, not as extensive. You don't need that much coal, but also better, you know, improving the conditions, improving to the point where you can do surgical mining, where you can actually look at specific type of coal that you need, but also pay for, and that's, I'm a strong supporter for that, to actually use part of that to actually bring back some of the mines and to restore the natural beauty of the, the environment around it that was actually sort of destroyed by the mining in itself. So a restoration base. All those things are possible, but only possible if you have an economic way to justify the mining in the first place. Now what's happening is the coal extraction companies, they, they close down and you know they file bankruptcy 
And then everything is left as it is. There's tons of waste that is left behind. Communities are left on their own devices and there's nothing to be done about. So even, even if you say, I don't want to mine, mine any new coal, there has to be some sort of solution for these communities that are left behind with a huge, massive problem that has to do with waste, but also has to do with an environment in which essentially it's been destroyed by, by the mining itself. So by transitioning into a use that could actually benefit, not just in terms of local economy, if you, see, you know, if there's something to sell and making the so-called green jobs that everybody talks about, but, you know, essentially to make something that people can actually make out of those materials. And at the same time, restoring your background, you have a possible way to restore some sort of, I'm not going to say way of life, but essentially bring back a little bit of uh, revitalization in some of these communities. And states that are affected are very, very recipient with that. We, we are actually in conversation with many states at the state level and the legislature level. And it's not even about a, a partisan position. You entertain conversation with across the aisle, literally, with no particular differences you know, in, in the approach. Because it's a win-win for pretty much everybody uh, one way or another. So I, I hope that kind of covers a little bit of you know, kind of the issues with mining. Obviously, mining coal is bad. And in fact, I would say that a lot of mining is bad in general. Mining for elements for making a battery, for example, they're not necessarily any better. Mostly, if you consider cobalt, you know, coming from the Congos, which is done probably in conditions that here will be illegal since probably the 70s. So uh, sometimes politics, or at least perceived politics, into these kinds of things sort of makes the things that coal is particularly worst. I'm not saying that it's good. But it's not because we use a technology which is renewable. Necessarily, that means that the material that we use are extracted just as sustainably. They're not. Um, and, and, and there's obviously a lot of effort into that to trying to, to make it such. Long story short, we have to deal with the problem of left behind by the legacy of the use of fossil fuels that we did so far. And we think that possibly creating this new market for materials that are out of this may actually be a way to do. All right. Yes. Could you tell us what it is you're proposing to do? Well, first of all, it's not a, what I'm proposing, but it's a, it's a concerted effort by several groups. And in fact, some actually are even at the, the governor level, you know, the Department of Energy, National Energy Technology Laboratory, which we work with. Uh, the idea is to try to benefit from what we know from coal, from the, the many years that we've been using it. Uh, but to leverage the kind of diverse chemistry that is built in. There's a lot of chemistry in it. There's a lot of different molecules. There's a lot of types of sub-materials within the same material itself. And to basically leverage all of that to create new things. So what are these new things? Obviously, they can be as fancy as electronic components, um, and not necessarily chips, but sensors. Um, we actually made sensors. We made, we made soft robots, you know, little things that are very extremely simple that you can use to actually, for example, uh, sense uh, motion or strain. For example, you can put it on a building and you see if the building is moving or it's stretching. Uh, we made uh, small supercapacitors from the mini form of energy storage systems. And other people have made biotech devices. So for example, platform to make sensors, uh, for example, detecting viruses or detecting uh, biological entities from the blood. Now, uh, a lot of that resorts into going from coal to things like graphene, for example, these wonder materials, uh, carbonation materials that we keep hearing right now, and then using that. Uh, and it's a viable way to do it. There's a lot of coal, obviously, and the process to get from that to this sort of fancy materials, it's actually fairly straightforward. Not completely simple, but it's actually, we're starting to get a handle of it from the research standpoint. 
Now, those are all viable applications. We had a little bit of a, a side project for a while to actually make even solar cells out of this material. That's challenging because the technology that we have today is so good for solar cells that um, being competitive in that market is actually extremely hard for these materials. But conceptually, one could look into, into these sort of applications. But I'm going to bring a, a sort of a bigger point here. Those are very fine and very viable. Uh, and in fact, I can argue that with only a few grams or actually milligrams of material, you can make bio devices that you can sell for tens of dollars. Uh, so you have something that can, can be sold for $100 a kilogram for them. However, the main issue um, is that it doesn't use a lot of coal. So you can't rely on too much to actually make it on that. And so it's all good and nice, but if a wagon of coal covers the needs for the country for a year, we don't have a business. Basically. So is there any other market potentially that is still high price, essentially it's a high value, but also guarantees capacity? Not necessarily at the levels of today, but significant capacity also for this community to basically produce quite significant materials. And frankly, there's essentially only one particular uh, market that does it, and it's the construction industry. Um, if you think about the number of buildings that needs to be built, it's, it's just natural to think of how can we fit into that market. And I'm just going to give you a few sort of reference points. Globally, not just in the US, but globally, the number of buildings will double uh, between now and 2050 with a growth which is in 5% a year in terms of growth in your buildings. Uh, residential or commercial is just the same. Particularly in developing countries, but also in here, the needs for affordable housing is pushing towards having more and more buildings built. Uh, what I can say is, well, how do we support that industry? Considering that the materials used today are not necessarily sustainable themselves. Right now we use wood, which it's a good material, for construction, but it's, it's frankly not necessarily sustainable in Martin because in many places in Europe, for example, there's not much to use anyway. Um, concrete is a massive carbon emitter. And by massive, I literally mean massive. It, it's, 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 uh, we don't think as such, but cement production for concrete, it's a super high energy temperature process and so energy intensive that it's one of the major contributors to CO2 emissions. And yet, we still use it for buildings, most in Europe, again, where wood is not uh, omnipresent. Steel is also a material that requires significant amount of energy to be produced. All of them could be transitioned at some point to cleaner sources of energy, but yet the sheer amount of energy that it's needed to make them is so high that one has to ask, is that a better way to do it? And so that's where kind of potentially ideas using carbon materials to actually replace all of them with the idea that those processes to make them are a lot more affordable from an energy standpoint, and the emissions that also come with it are potentially much less. Given the ability, because a building will be made out of carbon, carbon is a very strong material when it's done right, uh, to actually reduce, for example, the weight of the building, so you need less materials, or actually make it even more, say, insulating or not, because carbon allows you that kind of flexibility that you can actually have. Um, that is actually something that we feel particularly strongly about as a possible direction in that we do have methodologies in place, or okay, we are developing, where you can make almost to the point where you can 3D print components uh, or make serially, you know, these large modules that you can assemble to create a house. Most of the cost in a house today, it's not the materials, by the way. Um, it's actually the people working it to put it together. The construction crew, 
the electricians, the interior engineers, the interior workers, because everybody works on a little piece of material. Um, some pulls up the drywall, someone else put down the electrical wiring. Sometimes. So when you actually have a way to combine all that into a module that you can create fairly inexpensively using a carbon material, uh, it's all for the wet in, in, in the long run. And it's frankly a way to solve a lot of the emission problem, not that comes directly from the use of the material per se, but it, it's from the materials that we use right now, the, the, the steel and concrete and, 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 and wood to some extent anyway. So the massive amount of needs that we'll have for housing in future years, I mean, even right now for that matter in many places, it requires us to take action. So in other words, on one end, you have climate change and you have carbon emissions. On the other hand, we got to keep up with housing using highly emitting materials. And so how you balance that out, it's actually a problem. I will think it's even more pressing at the global scale than say transportation. Because for transportation, we do have a solution. Um, say call it electric vehicles or call it something else. In the building industry, we really don't have it. Uh, and it's just equally as, as, as strong. You were talking about the energy it takes to make concrete or to make steel. So this using the coal and making it into, you said carbon building materials? Sure. Not take that same amount of energy. Correct. Yeah. So these materials like concrete and steel are fairly simple. And what it takes to get from something that you extract from the ground, the materials that you make um, the building cells and the silicates from sand, to the actual concrete that you bring to the construction site. There's not many ways. I mean, people like keep at it for a long time to trying to minimize the energy needed, but it, there's really not much. Essentially, whenever you have a material which is simple, it's like trying to cook a cake with only one ingredient. There's not very many ways you can make that cake, right? Um, <laughs> and the same for steel. Um, you know, it's iron and carbon. You can tune it around, but it's still pretty intensive to actually make it. With this carbon materials that, again, includes coal, but also include things like carbon nanotubes derived from, for example, natural gas, uh, where, as an aside, it's not about coal, but, you know, it might be interesting still. You take natural gas, which is carbon with hydrogen, you strip the hydrogen out that you can use for the hydrogen economy to run, for example, other things. And then you're left with the carbon that you can actually use to make strong materials like carbon nanotubes, which you can then use, for example, for buildings as well. You, you, you don't throw away anything. You just use one thing as a fuel, so to speak, um, that is the hydrogen, and then use carbon for something else. Um, and those materials are actually very viable today or are getting very viable, actually, even competitively economically. You just need to compensate with what those materials cannot provide. The specific of, of a building, for example, adhesions, layers, glue, resins, um, which is where the coal actually um, might potentially come in uh, as a compensation point. The point is, uh, at larger, uh, this is all possible because carbon, it's actually unique as an element in the periodic table that allows flexibility within itself. And the best argument I can make for it is that it's the only material which it's still carbon, but it can become graphite as well as diamond. Those are both carbon. There's no difference. The atoms are exactly the same. But by the way you arrange them, you can get either the most expensive, prestigious, transparent, shiny piece of mineral, which is a diamond, or the stuff that you write on, which is, which is graphite. Um, okay. And so that kind of flexibility is unique. There's no other material that allows you to do it with everything in between from polymers are also made out of obviously carbon um, and, and carbonation structures in between. And so leveraging that obviously requires a lot of work and that's what allows you to actually design 
not just the material itself, but processes it that you know could be very low energy. We made materials, films that actually, or membranes for filtration that are literally as simple as make you can make it in your kitchen. Um, so what I'm trying to say is, yes, it's we are leveraging the chemistry and the complexity of the material to actually bring down everything else from cost to the difficult processing and to reduce it. Are we there yet? We're not, but that's kind of the path that we're setting forward for ourselves. It's not just about the, the scientific curiosity that allows us to think about where we wanted to go in achieving a particular material, but we also think down the line of all those communities that might be benefiting, how they might actually be the carbon valley of tomorrow. Like there's a Silicon Valley, there might be a carbon valley of tomorrow, maybe located sometimes, you know, in the proximity of Pittsburgh. That's kind of the vision. Just a moment for station ID now. You're listening to Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. Now back to our interview with Dr. Nicola Ferralis. You talked about jobs and reducing greenhouse gases, but it seems to me that there are a bunch of other possible benefits. Yeah, so, um, well, again, it's, it's early. We don't necessarily know how that might translate into an economy that might sustain, for example, a whole state. You got to keep in mind also one other aspect. Let's say that you want to evaluate the use of these materials in the building sector. As you know, the building sector is one of the most complicated industries around, mostly because there's no unified way to make a house or a building. There's different codes, depending where you are, the different types of requirements, both, for example, in terms of being fireproof or not, uh, but also in terms of occupancy. If it's a building that takes a certain amount of people, we'll have different requirements than another. So unifying that around new materials, it's actually complicated in its own way from a purely structural and architectural way. Um, lots of architects in the forefront of this saying this. It's a market that is trying for significant disruption, basically meaning that we've been doing houses in the same way for a long time. Let's put it that way. And so the benefits might be also into the point where we can actually have better housing going forward. It's also much more affordable than it is right now. So that's a benefit over there. Uh, a benefit that might not be direct in terms of coal. Folks not in coal country might actually have a house made out of coal and they might not even care, but it might be scientifically cheaper for them to be affordable rather than not, uh, as it would otherwise would. I'm not going to go in, uh, into political territory here, but we, uh, we live in, in Cambridge, which, as you know, it's a pretty much a liberal stronghold. <laughs> and um, I have really good friends in places where it's pretty much on the other side of the political spectrum. And one of the things that really unite the conversation is the idea to say, you know, we do have potentially something that can unite us in the way forward. To the point where coal is bad is sort of something of the past. It's like, let's try to see where we can find a sort of a common agreement on where we can go forward. Other conversation might be difficult to have, but this is not one of them. Uh, in a sense that we do find common ground. In fact, we can see an opening that says, you know, my parents or grandparents working on coal mines for, you know, coal is part of our life. While we do with it, I don't care. Do we burn it or we make things? I don't care. But we do have a resource that we feel strongly connected to. So if there's something else we could do with it, I'm very happy, you know, to explore that conversation. You know, that's sort of the point of this. The federal government recognized that. And in fact, a lot of the policies that developed the sort of call to product idea were developed on the previous administration, but they're ongoing on this one as well. 
which is, you know, as, as dramatic as a change as it was, uh, those policies are somewhat still in place. There's a stronger effort, if you want, which I think is justified, towards dealing with the coal waste rather than actually mining new coal. Let's just see what we can do in trying to use the waste that we produce, which is quite sizable. You know, the idea is still pretty much there. And uh, the technical folks in the national labs, they're pretty much committed to that being the future of the business, pretty much. It seems to me some other benefits might have to do with air pollution and health and also acid rain. For sure, certainly. That benefit comes only uniquely from the fact that you're shutting down coal power plants. Um, uh, Maybe I'm a little too radical here. There's a lot of effort, obviously, in trying to curb the emission on existing one through carbon sequestration. But ultimately, those solutions might become economically less and less viable going forward as too expensive. At the end of the day, what you care about is how much you can sell a kilowatt of energy. If that kilowatt of energy, it's more expensive, quite sizable amount compared to, say, a solar panel, you're going to be, you know, you're going to shut it down. But in shutting it down, you do actually have those benefits that comes from emissions, uh, not just of CO2, but also of other minerals. And in fact, I must actually say this because I, I think it's actually an important point. Coal, because it's an organic material that comes from the ground, it's not just carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen. There's a whole variety of minerals in there or other elements rather, that are actually sizable and viable, like the so-called rare herds. Now, rare herds are this particular variety of very expensive otherwise uh, elements uh, that we use in, uh, in pretty much in everyday life, from cell phones to batteries. And those actually could be mined directly, meaning that you mine for that element, or they could be extracted from materials that you extract. And coal actually is not particularly rich, but there's actually quite a sizable amount as well that you can extract. And so there's a whole effort in research to extract those to actually be used, and they actually come necessarily from coal. Otherwise, those will be burned as well and go into the atmosphere, including, you know, sulfur is not the only one. There's a whole lot of mercury uh, and all these other things. And so by sequestering them, by not burning them, you can say, well, I'm just going to leave it there. And it's viable. It's fine. You know, if it says, I'm not going to extract any more coal so it doesn't come out from the ground, it's fine. But if you do, and then you use, you use the carbon for something else, you do have an opportunity to use also those materials that otherwise you will mine anyway from other sources. So it would be a replacement for some of these other sources. Yeah, we, we look at kind of in those terms. And, uh, and again, there's, a, there's been a huge effort by the Department of Energy, uh, mostly because when you're mining for something, uh, you are restricted by primarily the availability of it. It's not that every country has its own mine for whatever they need. Uh, it'd be nice, but unfortunately, it doesn't work that way, um, which is why cobalt is primarily in Congo, because it's really the only place we can really find it. I mean, there's other places too but not as uh, easily available as in the, in the Republic of Congo. And that is the same for many of these other elements that are actually needed. Um, so a lot of the mine materials that we use today, it's actually not American. It's actually coming from China or from other places. And so the national security sort of component to it, but in principle, we do have a lot of calling. So, so a lot of it comes from that. You might be able in principle to balance out the internal production of this material as well into, into the production of, of what's needed. You keep hearing that a crisis only develops when it, reach, it reaches critical mass. You can hear, for example, today the shortage in chips. Now, that is not necessarily due to mining, but you could actually achieve something like that, for example, if uh, there's a conflict with a country that gives us particular type of elements. And so what do you do with that? We're not, we no longer have the kind of supply. Uh, 
by national security standards, the issue of rare hertz has always been at the top, or critical minerals, it's called, and that includes even more materials that are not part of that family. Uh, so critical minerals to be extracted at home has been a focus on several administrations at this point. Uh, it's not something that is sexy to the point where it says, you know, it's shiny, but it's extremely vital for continued innovation. And there's lots of effort to using coal for it. You listed a number of reasons, one, to help the communities that are there, but is there enough coal to support all these uh, uses you're talking about? Absolutely. Absolutely. We Sometimes they refer to the U.S. as the Saudi Arabia of coal. So there's basically, I'm not going to say infinite, but supply way overcompensate demand for a number of decades up in front of us. So it's absolutely not necessarily a constraint by any means. Now, because you have it doesn't mean that you should take it out unless you have a really good reason for it. I assume you've thought about the carbon footprint of mining and transporting the coal for some absolutely. of these uses. What so, would you say about those issues? Well, again, it's early work. You can't really develop what is called a techno-economic or a life cycle analysis, meaning evaluating everything from the literally the ground to whatever it ends up in without having a specific process in mind. But one thing I can say is um, if we look at transportation, there's lots of ways transportation can be, say, for example, electrified, right? And so a lot of transportation could be made sustainably to the point where it doesn't matter where you move things around, as you can still move it in terms of uh, sustainably so. Um, now, I, will, I wouldn't think necessarily it's a good idea to say extract coal and process in, say, Wyoming and bringing it down to, I don't know, Massachusetts for that matter, or California and process it there. Might as well just making it there what you want to make and then developing outside, uh, just bringing outside in the final modules. Um, unfortunately, for a lot of materials today, sometimes electrification, but it might be hard to achieve. For example, if you want to keep using concrete, there are drastic measures you have to take to get to that point where you can electrify it, and you might not be able to get there. So our drive is not just to make something, say, for example, a replacement for, for a piece of concrete. But it's actually making it in such a way that the process itself is as close as possible to be emitting zero carbon. Um, obviously, it's made out of carbon. And so it's a kind of a funny cycle that you take out carbon, but you don't put it in the atmosphere. You actually put it kind of down and back again into the ground as a building. So you, you, in a way, you are sequestering carbon. You're just moving around to sequester it. The idea is literally to have as close to zero emission as possible. It's a very ultra simplification of what, you know, mostly because going from a laboratory to massive manufacturing scale, you know, includes a lot of different moving parts and all that. But the goal is to achieve it throughout that. And one way or another, we have to, you have to do it. Even if we say this all call to product idea makes no sense, we'll have to just improve what we have. It's, it's not an easier problem. In fact, I will argue it's actually more complicated because people have been at it for a long time, trying to decarbonize the industrial sector, which is basically composed of three things. Filtrations, meaning trying to remove, for example, distillation from petroleum, all the different components that we use for making plastics or for making uh, additives. Um, another one is the cement industry. Another is the steel industry. Uh, probably the easiest one of the three is the, the steel industry. But the cement industry is incredibly hard to decarbonize. And you can look at the numbers. Uh, they're astounding. I mean, there's more like 10% of the emissions are actually coming from the cement industry in the industrial sector. It's among us. It's huge. Our point is, it's so hard of a problem 
we can argue that an equally hard, but potentially more down the line, potentially more uh, beneficial one using coal might actually be available. That includes not just the product itself, but also the communities that can actually benefit from. I think it's a win-win. We've talked a little bit about mining and the pro- and the problems. Many of the bad effects of burning coal will go away if you're using it another way, but some of the mining problems may still exist. What do you know about how we could do mining better? It all depends on the amount that will actually be used and how we'll actually use it. Because coal, when you burn it, you don't care what's in it as long as it burns. Mostly because you're after so little money when you sell that amount that you just take whatever you got. So by being more surgical, um, which basically means going after particular types of the seams or being more selective in the way you're sort of doing it, might actually be, uh, and all stuff that, by the way, these days it's all done by robots. Um, the mining industry could definitely benefit from more extensive employment of robots, robotic basically extractors, um, which are, again, can do all that, can do be, be more surgical, could be more effective, and could be, to some extent, also automated, to the point where literally the mining will be, from a human point of view, uh, really minimal. There will be no, no, basically no miners left into the mine. All those people will actually be working on the manufacturing side, you know, once they, they, they actually produce things. From an actual environmental standpoint, meaning like literally the, 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 the land, those, the, you could actually have a plan to do strategic mining, which you, you mine, but then you don't just strip everything off and then sometimes someone in the future will take care of it. You just do it right as you do it. In other words, if you, if you mine it, then you have to have a plan to sort of bring it back to what it was. That costs money. But then again, if you have a product and sustain that, and that's kind of the deal. I mean, life cycle analysis is supposed to be taking care of all that aspect too. Just as an aside, when we look at the price of gasoline uh, left alone the taxes, the actual price of that doesn't account for the cost of carbon itself, right? It's only cost, it's a cost of extraction. Now, the emissions that come with it, the environmental impact that comes with it, those are not accounted in that final price. But as you, as you know, as you put a price on carbon, first of all, gasoline will be a lot more expensive. So it's not uniquely a problem for coal. It's one for the fossil industry in general. And one could argue that you could put a price on coal and then deal with that, to, to, for, for example, remediation. The problem is it's economically unviable. If you increase that price of coal, you'll be out of the market. It's already out of the market in many ways. If you rather add a, essentially a way where your product that can compensate, use part of the, the revenue they use from the product, to actually do remediation at the time of the extraction, you might actually have a better way to do it. Some folks might say, well, we don't want mining at all. And I take issue with that because if you don't mine anything and you stop mining at all, the world will most likely stop because um, stuff has to come from somewhere. Um, Solar cells come from sand as well as chips. Um, Steel has to come from iron and you do need iron ores. Um, And then all the rest of it that we use today, the only thing that we really don't mind is wood, uh, but you know I would argue that the the logging industry is not in a better position, you know, environmentally uh, as the mining industry as well. So we do use the resources that are around us. The question is not whether we should mine or not, but what is the best way we could do it and sustain it. So that's kind of the the goal of pretty much of our research as well. 
I know you were saying there's a lot of coal in the U.S., but sure. there are many places in the world, China, India, Southeast Asia, Poland, okay. Germany, UK, sure. UK yep. where they're much more reliant on coal. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was thinking some of these uses might be even more appropriate. Certainly. For those. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, absolutely. Um, so this is a potential solution for a global problem. Uh, when we talk with the federal government, there's always about this sort of America first approach in which you know, what we do should benefit, you know, the American market and the American uh, citizens first. Um, on the other hand, you know, it's a technology that could be used anywhere in principle. Uh, and in fact, I would argue that it will make no sense if you're trying to develop technology for the building sector for parts that we will be selling in India. Bringing it down to India might be, you know, <laughs> why? You know, you might, you know, you spend so much effort in trying to decarbonize what you're trying to make. And then it's going to be on a ship to India. Um, it makes no sense, given the given the, the amount that you will actually need. So no, absolutely, those technologies could be. We don't. We I personally don't have any problem. In fact, I would love to see that employed, mostly because those new buildings that will be needed between now and 2050, um, I think it's 65 to 70 percent are not in the U.S. They're actually somewhere else um, in the world. And so, um, given that coal is everywhere, pretty much. Mostly in places where they need it most, China and India being the first and foremost, might be that's actually sort of a way for them to be using less of the concrete, which at the moment is made using coal as a fuel source to actually use something else. We have to move quickly, but that's kind of the challenge on our side. You said we have to move quickly. How do you see that going? That's an interesting question, actually. Um, so we do have a a project internally, or it's more like a visionary um, plan internally here at MIT, uh, which we are proposing at the institute level. So there's a bunch of architects and engineers, material science like me, um, working together to develop a plan for it. The idea is that it's not going to happen in one shot in one space immediately, but the urgency is such that um, obviously funding will be needed, and we are working on that level. But essentially, the initiative where we are trying to develop is trying to target first buildings to be put up in place in the next five to 10 years um, in a sort of a cost competitive way. Can we do it? Well, that's the challenge. But one of the things that, at least as an MIT person, um, with a sort of an MIT mentality, uh, and I don't want to be sort of, you know, parochial or provincial here, but essentially one of the things that we do all the time here is trying to set ourselves ambitious goals um, because it's only that that can allow us to realistically develop a plan. You can be ambitious, but you cannot go after, say, for example, funding for a particular project that you might have without necessarily having, at the same time, uh, a sort of a vision of the scale that it will take. In other words, I'm not going to be able to change the world with, if I don't ask for at least you know, several millions of dollars for development, um, as well as I cannot ask for several millions of dollars for something that is not going to impact the world either. So by setting yourself with the right vision, going forward and involving upscale. That includes involving not just MIT, but involving states, as I said, involving contribution from the federal government, um, contribution from Congress for that matter, and uh, to actually having the ability to create not just one place, but is to say, create many of these initiatives that brings the idea forward to a point where we can accelerate. That's basically what's needed. Um, and to the point where basically you have to produce something that you can say, look, I can make this inexpensive enough. We have enough of it. 
now is the time says, okay, if someone wants to build a factory out of it in whatever place they need it, we'll help you out moving that technology to that point. Um, so 10 years, it's challenging, but not unrealistic. With prototypes coming way before that. In fact, uh, some prototypes actually have been built right now. So I can't speak too much of it because, uh, again, it's in the works, but it's happening already. Um, and so that's kind of the time frame that we'll set ourselves for. Oh, that sounds very exciting. You'll have to keep us apprised of what's happening. <laughs> we'll, we'll cross in fingers. Here's the only catch. The only catch is those houses will be dark. It's coal after all, and it's carbon. Carbon, uh, unless you want to make it out of diamonds, which it's not a good idea. Uh, I mean, it is a good idea if you're after beauty and aesthetics, but uh, it's not a good idea in terms of cost. It's going to be dark, but you know, you can paint them. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's kind of the ability. So once things actually move forward a little more, I'll be happy to share with you some pictures of what those actually might look like. We really enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you. I appreciate that too. And uh, looking forward to maybe having a session in the future discussing how this was a sort of a, how we went through um, or not. <laughs> well, it's nice to hear these hopeful things. You, you never know what's going to be marketable and scalable and so many exactly. factors that are social and otherwise go and between just, now and then. <laughs> That's right. and just and just talking with you, I'm thinking, okay, you have you'll you'll have this wonderful product, you'll have these modular things, and then you have to deal with the building trades and the the that's codes. Right. That's right. I mean, that's almost like a more challenging yeah, yeah, no, sure. process. Yeah, well, well, it is. You know, it's even even without maybe it is. And the it unions is. and the plumbers and the. <laughs> well, so here's the thing. You know, only two percent of the buildings in the United States, residential buildings, basically houses, are done by professionals. Pro by professional, I don't mean the contract, but people with literally architects and uh, structural engineers, um, only 2%. The, the, the remaining 98% or so, it's basically done by people putting up their houses with like, you know, a mom and pop shop. Now, no disrespect at all. I mean, those houses are fine and viable and, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. It's just that, that's the people that we'll have to deal with, you know, in transition to, you know, this novel technology. Um, and so architects are easy to convince. They just need the figures of merit of particular materials and they design whatever they need to design. Um, but for people using two by fours for living, <laughs> there might be a big, big change. You know? Yeah. And the architects will have, and you guys, material science people will have to design something that mom and pops can use. Exactly. Exactly. Um, We'll get to that, I suppose. <laughs> well, it's really been delightful talking Thank with you. Thank you so much for your, for your perspective on all of this. I hope you will consider making a small monthly donation to help Planet Philadelphia continue presenting interviews on important underreported environmental topics and exploring their complexities and intersections. Thank you so much for your support. If you want to know more about Planet Philadelphia, go to planetphiladelphia.com. You could also find out more about other G-Town Radio programming by going to gtownradio.com. Thank you for listening.